1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Joshua Scacco and Kevin Cole, who are authors of The Ubiquitous Presidency, Presidential Communication and Digital Democracy in Tumultuous Times. There's a lot of big words in there. Um, This is published by Oxford University Press um, in a really fascinating series um, on digital politics. This was published in 2021. And I'm going to let Josh and Kevin talk to us about this. First, I'd like to ask them how They came to this project and to tell us a little bit about themselves individually. Hello, Josh. Hello, Kevin. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, Lily. Hello. Thanks for having us yeah thanks so much for having us here today it's great to be able to talk about our book
2: Uh, i just wanted to start out by asking you how you came to this project on essentially what is a new conception or a sort of reconceptualization of the the place of the presidency and how voters consume it how political scientists historians communication scholars think about it um how did you start off with this project that seems to have perhaps been um, germinating for a little while?
0: <laughs> the, I would say the beginnings of this project were behind the scenes were a probably a series of frustrations and roadblocks. So, just a little bit of background on me, I came at this through the lens of thinking about uh, presidential media fragmentation. So how is it that presidents were communicating and are communicating across a changing media landscape, not only just news, but also media platforms, social and digital, those types of places. And the challenge was for me, every time I came at this work, uh, the established conceptions of the American presidency were very much based in kind of this mass media era of very large audiences that tune into the president, uh, fairly, uh, fairly strong effects in some instances, uh, with in some ways, some pushback in some circles from political scientists on what the nature of those effects were. But nevertheless, this kind of Understanding and expectations of the president of being able to create this sort of like mass presence for people. And that wasn't aligning with reality. And so that was the frustration on my end. Uh, and uh, surprisingly, and I'll, and I'll let Kevin kind of tell the story from his point of view, um, I was a big fan of Kevin's work. Uh, before Kevin and I were t- talked about this book. And so when we first talked about this in really the fall of 2014 for the first time and sat down, that conversation had a lot of frustration amongst both of us. We were at a conference and A, it seemed like the work in this area had stagnated. The work that we were looking at had stagnated. And the work that was going forward was very much wedded to these conceptions of the American presidency that were born out of this mass communication age with Franklin Roosevelt and fireside chats or JFK on TV or Ronald Reagan on TV. So I'll pass it over to Kevin and he can tell it from his kind of point of view.
3: Yeah, it's it's been a, a, a long time coming, the book, and it's because Josh and I when when we met, Josh was a, an ambitious um, recent PhD graduate, and, and he had read some of my work and and he just asked me to conference if we could talk about some ideas with the regard to the changing presidency. And so uh, I sat and listened, and Josh had great ideas. And as Josh said, we were frustrated because we both had, in different ways, come to a sense that the presidency was changing rapidly, and that a lot of the previous understandings, some of the foundational scholarship that had emerged in the 1980s, we were still relying on those same assumptions, even though it was clear those assumptions no longer held. And so we, we felt hamstrung. And building on some of the work from scholars like Mary Stuckey, who had a, a wonderful piece in 2010 about the rhetorical presidency needing to be understood and reimagined um, based around changing issues of identity in America and a more diverse populace and so on, we started thinking about what a new framework for the presidency might be, how how we could put together ideas that might help us better judge the contemporary presidency on its own terms, so to speak. So so really let go of some of those old assumptions that no longer held and see if we could come up with something that was more productive and generative for where the presidency was at in its current iteration um, and so that's what that's what we tried to do. And and the book really then grew out of those initial conversations and an initial article that was published in 2016 and and just grew from there. And it's been um, kind of wonderful and surprising to see how things have unfolded in, in ways that, that we think the, the framework has really helped better understand.
2: And, and so you have um, what you're looking at is. The way that the presidency exists and to some degree communicates. Um, so it's it's not necessarily about the the powers of the office um, in the constitutional framework um, so much as the contemporary presidency as this this sort of living breathing um, place that and and thing that we are always interacting with in a certain sense. We as citizens, um, obviously as political scientists or rhetoricians or communication scholars, we interact with it in a different way. Um and so you come to this thesis of the ubiquities president, which seems very apt. <laughs> it's really hard to get away. <laughs> um, but you also talk about the the both the context and the goals as the sort of overarching thesis. Um, for this ubiquitous president, presidency, sorry, presidency, and that this is also sort of repositioning this conceptual understanding, um, moving away from the sort of expected rhetorical presidency concept. Um, can you talk about what you mean by context and goals and how this presidency is situated in that framework?
3: So the when we came to this, we wanted to try to understand what had changed and what hadn't changed about the presidency. And so what hasn't changed are the goals. So presidents have, as far as presidential communication goes, they've, they've always sought visibility, right? They, they need to try to, to, to be out there, at least in what we've come to know as the modern presidency. They've, they've tried to get their message out to the public. They've always tried to adapt to, to changing circumstances, and they've always tried to exert some kind of control. Over their messaging with the idea that then maybe that helps them keep or or grow their support among the public. So those those three goals: vis- visibility, adaptation, and control, have been very steady. What what the framework then adds is how the changing context in which presidents try to achieve those goals helps. Explain the way the presidency looks now, and so the context—the three contexts that the framework lays out—are accessibility. And so, with the diversification of the media environment that, that Josh mentioned, that's forced presidents to seek audiences in new spaces, both political and non-political spaces, where they didn't tend to be before. And the kind of give and take with the public that that is that's expected in those different kinds of spaces. The second context then is personalization. Um, So this is the idea that digital spaces especially are more personal and effective. And so there's been a lot of good work that's showing how presidents are trying to adjust to those new spaces, reveal a little bit more about themselves, be more willing to, to be less formal, to make a joke when the moment calls for it, that kind of thing. And so that personalization has been another context that presidents have had to adjust to. And then the final context we lay out is pluralism, and that speaks to the the increasing diversity of the public and political spaces um, over the the course, especially of the last several decades. So the rapid diversification of not only people, but of the perspectives that are are given voice in the political sphere. And presidents have had to adjust to that as well, whether that be in some cases um, embracing that that kind of diversity and speaking uh, in ways that include those different voices, or uh, as we saw most obviously in the case of President Trump, leveraging the that change in context as a way to exclude and to attack. And so the, those changes, those the growth of those three contexts in relation to those three goals, we think really helps explain the way the presidency looks now.
0: And I'll just jump in that what we see with the context is when when Kevin and I approached this work, it was actually in some ways a series of and, you know, research geek talk, you know, some validity checks here uh, because I had started to come at this and be was thinking about it from accessibility perspectives and a lot of Kevin's work leading up to this and continuing is in thinking about matters of representation. And, um, so pluralism was very much kind of on the mind. If you read Kevin's work, it's very much on the mind of the projects that he does. And so when we began to piece these elements together, we saw in a lot of ways, they all work in tandem and so you can't necessarily separate these out. And so a moment, for example, like a crystallizing moment of Bill Clinton on MTV in 1994 doing a town hall about guns and, and crime and violence in America before a group of teenagers Really, and then getting a question from the crowd about whether or not he prefers boxers or briefs, in many ways crystallizes accessibility, personality, and pluralism in that moment, right? It's a new venue where presidents had not traditionally gone. He gets asked a question on a very personal topic, and he's reaching, in some ways, a group that was on the leading edge of understanding demographic change in the United States. And so we see that as one moment in these sorts of very series, very kind of like a series of moments that illustrate the pattern of the ubiquitous presidency over the past couple of decades.
2: And, and again, this is also what you talk about because that answer to the question was also carried the next day across different well the diversity of media platforms that existed in 1994 which is not as diverse as they are now um, but that's also how the presidency the communication and the rhetoric of the presidency has shifted that it's it's not about as as you note sort of in the, in the introduction it's not about standing at the podium with the seal and you know being in a in a dark suit with a tie and giving a speech um in terms of understanding how presidents communicate and what the context and the goals are. Absolutely, and the, the interesting thing is,
0: Bill Clinton as historical figure here is critically important to understand in the sense of the push and pull of forces that were at play on the presidency. And this is partly the reason why we default to thinking about the ubiquitous presidency as an institution uh, as opposed to just the president and the individual machinations that a that each occupant of the office brings to it because when bill clinton comes into office the important kind of context for bill clinton is the 92 campaign where he's up against a sitting president and also up against a changing media environment, a diversifying public. Uh, and the challenge for George H.W. Bush in office is whether or not to adapt to what's going on. Bill Clinton as challenger decides to adapt. He goes on Arsenio Hall, he goes into on Larry King Live, MTV, many of these spaces. And George H.W. Bush is given the invitation And he's given the opportunity and he turns it down and says that these are unpresidential spaces for the president to go into. Bill Clinton ends up winning. And much as we talk about in the book, much as ultimately happens with institutions sometimes, the winner dictates where the institution goes and the adaptation that the institution takes. And so that becomes really important. We, we interrogate in this book this notion of presidentialness, which is a very important concept for both political scientists and communication researchers in understanding expectations of the office. And this idea of what is presidential comes up over and over again. Barack Obama faced these questions quite a bit at the beginning of his presidency. Donald Trump faced them as well with regard to his behavior. And so we see this kind of recurring thread of these types of changes ultimately get put back upon the office and whether or not they are appropriate or not based on the normative standards of the presidency. Kevin, you want
2: to? anything well, else just, in
3: there yeah just to pick up on this idea of what it means to be presidential and the expectations of the office one of the things we do in the book um, is we not only interrogate the idea of what it means to be presidential and and track over time and news coverage and and so forth some understandings of what it means to be presidential um, we also survey what we call venue expectations and frequency expectations and this is to get an understanding of how the public in, in two national surveys, uh, one in 2016 and one in 2019, how they understand and expect a president to communicate, specifically how often a president should communicate, and then in what places, that's the venue side of things. And we find some, some interesting things. I mean, one thing we find is that frequency expectations have increased so the fact that the president has become more ubiquitous seems to have uh, both probably been a response to public expectations but also is probably reinforcing public um, understandings of how often a president should speak to them and so we we saw growth over the three year span quite a, a noticeable growth in how people how often people want to hear from the president and so there's there are these changes that are really an interaction between what the president is doing and then how people come to understand that office. And that's that's, of course, something that is often true about the presidency, that what presidents do reinforces understanding of what it means to be president. And that then is reflected in how people understand the office of the presidency itself.
2: There's um, a famous line at the end of Henry V where Henry is telling Kate that they are the makers of manners. Um, and and so a lot of what you're talking about is the sort of understanding of this push and pull um, in terms of the office, that what do, do the people expect? What do the citizens expect of the office in terms of how the person presents himself to this point? Um, and also what does the president in inhabiting that office sort of do in terms of pushing it, um, and, and sort of also capitalizing on their particular strengths. Um, and, you know, we saw a lot of this obviously during the Trump administration, um, with again, shifts of the use of media. Um, students asked me over that entire four-year period about Trump's use of Twitter. Um, and, you know, was it presidential? So, since you're the experts, was it presidential? What do the studies show? <laughs> <laughs> it, it,
3: this, this, I'll just I'll let Josh um, answer this too. But I, I would just say it is presidential in the sense that because Trump started to do it, it becomes presidential, and that's we 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 saw some changes in venue expectations as well. So we talked about the appropriateness, essentially, of social media as a platform for presidential communication relative to things like traditional major addresses, State of the Union, and then other familiar venues, entertainment magazines, as an example, where they might show up or not. And and we see some increases, especially among younger people, in the sense that social media are a place where the president should be, right? That's, that's one of the places, one of the venues that president should be at. So... Trump's behavior necessarily reinforces and, and helps to grow the idea that Twitter is presidential in that respect.
0: I'll just add that if we think about the type of communication on Twitter, that gets the most reaction. Donald Trump was highly appropriate for Twitter. His communication fit the medium, and that's one of the things that... Um, Uh, One of the um, I think I think the listeners out there will understand that if you are uh, if you're in kind of like a university setting and you're teaching, if you're in political science, one of the first things you teach is intro American government. Right. Uh, In communication, it's public speaking. Right. On our side, it's public speaking. And one of the first things you talk about in public speaking to students is adaptation to audience and to setting and to the media that you're using. You have to adapt to it. And when you think about adaptation, again, going back to one of those goals of presidential communication, Donald Trump did it. Donald Trump adapted to Twitter and the moment. And what you saw, and I think this is where the disconnects were, you compare Donald Trump in a setting like Twitter to when he got up in a State of the Union, he was visibly uncomfortable. It was very apparent that he was uncomfortable because he tried to adapt, and it was very difficult for him to do, to the normative standards of what a president should look like and perform like in that setting. And we actually talk about this in the book. There is a really interesting moment. I believe it's during the campaign or during one of uh, uh, the former president's stops, where he's in front of the crowd and he actually gives this kind of like performative instance of the presidency where he says, I could be like a traditional normal president and like is straightening his tie and like, you know, grasps the podium and says my fellow Americans and does all those things. And then he completely just like rips off that mask for the audience, but it illustrates in some ways. And this is where I think both the brilliance and also the, in some ways, the scariness of that moment is is to Donald Trump, he illustrates the performance of it, and he makes it so apparent. And I think the concern in those particular moments when we get to these questions of presidentialness is the extent to which people become then so cynical that they think it's all performance, that they think institutions are all performance and don't matter, right? And so I know that's getting ahead of us here, but I think in many ways, these questions that we look at in the book around presidentialness, around appropriateness, they actually do open up a broader discussion about the nature of democracy and the nature of whether or not democracy is, to many people, merely performance.
3: Just maybe one more thought on that side of things. One of the things that Josh and I are proud of in the book is the range of data we bring to bear. And so one of the things we do is some large scale Twitter analysis uh, about the predictors of attention um, to the president on Twitter, and then also how presidents are or are not echoed, how their language is picked up and adopted um, by news media, Twitter, and then by public Twitter about the presidency. And two things of note. One is... When Obama got attention on Twitter, it was always around major addresses, very very traditional stuff. Not always, but almost always around traditional major addresses. When Trump got attention on Twitter, it was always about controversial tweets. So, So it was really a shift in just those two presidencies about what generated Twitter attention. But then also, there was a shift in the way that echoing happened on Twitter. And so for Obama, it was a pretty traditional kind of Robert Entman-esque cascading activation where Obama would say things and then the press would pick up that language and then the public would pick up that language. With Trump, that was was not the case. It was more of a direct Trump to public type of echoing to the extent that it happened. And so that's another really crucial shift in understanding why for, for Trump, Twitter was such an important vehicle, because it wasn't just that that he could get attention via the tweets is that the language then that would be circulating among the public would be direct from Trump in, in at least some important sense on, on, in this case, healthcare is where we tracked that analysis.
2: Yeah. And that's always what has been most fascinating to me as I sort of study the presidency um, was the way that there is, or during the Trump administration in particular, there was the president speaking to the public unfiltered um regardless in, in in no way pejoratively but it was just that that was how he had adapted um uh and that was how he was operating um and and so your your book is really useful in thinking about this changing media environment where a president can take to uh a a form of media and speak directly to the people um, and then have that as really a conversation um, when there are 340 million people and one president, and you know, oftentimes the president is also in this obscured bubble where nobody can actually get at him, um, which is you know part of what you're arguing with regard to the ubiquity of the presidency. Uh, but I wanted to ask you before we move forward, I want to take you back just a little bit um, and and sort of. Position your um, your thesis within this understanding of the role of rhetoric to the presidency, which has been a sort of long-standing um, discussion among historians and presidential scholars, and so forth, um, and and the importance of thinking about presidential rhetoric um, and how it works. For the office. We just talked about Trump speaking directly to the people, but that may or may not have been towards any particular end. But political science and history sort of think about the the goals of presidential rhetoric. And, And you talk about the goals with regard to visibility, adaptation, and control, but there are these bigger goals with regard to the use of rhetoric. Can you talk a little bit about how your... Research in this book fits into that broader context. So there is the
0: hist- the very historical notion of this, which in many ways, the threads go back to the founding, the design of the office constitutionally, and concern about what that office could become. And this question of, the extent to which the president would be insulated from the public. And there was, I think, a distrust of public communication, of using rhetorical appeal, uh, particularly vested in one individual. And so you see, in some ways, an attempt to defang the president In this way. And I think that might be one kind of metaphor to think about here that there were some constitutional protections put in place. Very few of them, though, applied to public communication. And what did restrain presidents were norms. And this becomes, in a lot of ways, very important when we get into really contemporary conversations about the normative implications of democracy because one of the normative guardrails up to the 20th century was this notion that presidents really did not speak to the public all that often. And in fact, it was highly discouraged. So the 1868 impeachment of Andrew Johnson, for example, we cover in the book because it really is an illustrative example of one of the original articles of impeachment passed against Andrew Johnson actually had to had concern about his public communication, particularly about members of Congress, uh, calling for essentially the hanging of a member of Congress. And so there was a lot of distrust of a popular leader engaging in public appeals that could essentially incite the public that normative guardrail in a lot of ways falls away with mass media in the 20th century and what we ultimately see. And I think that researchers would probably maybe agree on some things, but disagree in other ways about the extent to which this is helpful and or hurtful for democracy helpful and or hurtful for the presidency, helpful and or hurtful for people as well. And so we see in many ways an office that has gone beyond its original guardrails in this area. And we should be in a lot of ways carefully interrogating the extent to which this is appropriate for our normative conceptions of what is Safe for democracy. And we've seen in some ways the extent to which it can be used for promotion of particular policy in uh in and in, in ways. So we document in the book, for example, the ways in which Barack Obama communicated about the Affordable Care Act might have been critically important. You know, BuzzFeed videos, selfie sticks, all of those like kinds of what we would consider gimmicky ways in which of communicating were also very important for getting individuals to sign up for the healthcare marketplace under the ACA and to make sure that it functioned. But we also see in a lot of ways, the danger. And we see that in, for example, most prominently in the January 6th insurrection. And so I think that it is our kind of calling as researchers to carefully understand the extent to which
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
3: I I would just add I, I think that you know one one of the interesting things um, that Josh and I have in common is we're both communication scholars who spend lots of time with political scientists and so so I think we we kind of understand the, the different trajectories and under and ways of thinking about how presidential communication might affect publics um, that that have unfolded in in political science and communication. And to oversimplify it dramatically, there's been this understanding that if if a president doesn't move survey measured aggregate public opinion, then it doesn't have an effect. That's that's been something that political scientists have talked about. In, In a rhetoric, there's been an understanding that Every word a president says matters in some way. And and I think obviously those are straw figures that I'm about to attack, but I, I just I feel like we've we've not just we, Josh and I, but but lots of people who care about how a president's words might matter have gotten to a a more nuanced and fuller understanding of the different ways that that can happen, and and we try to reflect that understanding in the book. And so we we study quantitatively quantitatively the the way that um, a president's words might be echoed on Twitter. We run an experiment to see if you know priming understandings of the presidency can change the way people think about how often and where a president should communicate. But then we also uh, we do a deep dive into the the really horrifying uh, attacks on news media and on um, various um, other politicians, especially women of color that, that, that Donald Trump undertook as president. And we we talk about how those in moments clearly mattered in ways that could promote violence. And and we were writing all of this, of course, well ahead of of the January sixth attacks. But but as we saw those attacks unfolding, uh, we, we had very real reactions to the fact that this this could have been anticipated. Right. The, the way that a president can stir up and incite violence is very real and has been real for a long time, but it's probably even more real now both because of the particular president that we had uh, for four years, but also because of the changes in context that that Josh and I had talked about in the book. And so it's a it, it was a, a a hard truth to to come to as as all of that unfolded.
0: And I think that the broader risk here is in many ways there are, A lot of very detrimental outcomes that we could think about, particularly for democracy and the office of the presidency. So let's just look, for example, at January 6th. So the first is that you have these defendants being brought before federal district court in their court filings, essentially saying they thought they were carrying out the wishes of the president of the United States. So here's how two ways we can think about this. The first is that the president actually did have an effect, that the former president's words actually moved people to commit essentially an attempted coup d'etat. And we would probably have, if we made that claim, we would probably have a lot of pushback particularly from researchers saying, well, where's your causal evidence? You can't run an experiment. All of these other instances of, you know, and I appreciated Kevin's mention of kind of the extremes of this conversation. And you can kind of chalk us up to right now we're sub tweeting or sub speaking these particular things, but um, there really is, there would be that vein of researchers essentially saying we can't causally determine this. Right. And it was essentially one of the arguments that was used to try not to convict Trump the second time in the impeachment trial. So, you know, let's just suspend judgment for a second and say, sure, okay, we'll give it to him. Here's the second possibility, which is when the president engages in particular types of communication behavior, it then opens the office to attack and vulnerability in these instances by nefarious actors, who want to take an opportunity to attack the seat of government in the United States and then blame the president for it either one of those is not a good outcome so either there is a direct effect or now people can use the office as an excuse and then and then in that way lay blame so regardless of whatever side you know, research side, political side, however you want to come at this, neither one of those outcomes are great. You don't want defendants in court essentially saying, well, I carried out an attempted coup because the president told me so. You don't, you, you don't necessarily want that being kind of the record on a presidency, you know, at the end of a term.
2: And, and this is also where the, the words, of the person in that office because they are in that office embody a lot of power. If it's to, you know, encourage people to sign up for healthcare or to get a vaccine um, or to commit violence. That, you know, the 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 person in that office is unique as the term ubiquitous is also the same sort of root in and then and their capacity is unique in that regard to move people or at least to sort of be in a position where people say that is what moved me. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. And, and really, I, I think there were many times when Kevin and I were writing components of this book and I would think about all of the ways in which we would be immediately drawn to kind of the pro-democratic or like the pro-social outcomes of this type of these types of behaviors. And in so many ways, we overlooked the possibilities of the anti-social, anti-democratic ways in which this discourse could be used. And so I'll only speak for me here, but I felt that I was trying to play catch up on these things. And when your work then begins to collide with you know presidential communication and democratic backsliding, I think that there are many, I think that there are many of us who have been reintroduced to literature that we were not anticipating we would have to in our careers, in our lifetimes, but also pulling up, for example, literature and communication on propaganda. That very much propaganda studies and, and communication, you know, very much went out of style, you know, decades ago um, by, by, by quite a few researchers and has only recently begun to be picked up and relooked at in, in various ways as well.
3: Yeah, th- there was definitely a growth process for, for Josh and me and, it you know, it wasn't... Um... Uh, a hopeful one, but it was a useful one, and, <laughs> and, and I would just say one one interesting thing and, and kind of tragic thing really is as Josh and I were writing the the section on incitement to violence in in the Trump chapter, where we were talking about these attacks on the press and, and attacks on pluralism that led um, led to in in our analysis the the possibility of violence and, and danger. We, we thought at the time we were writing that, that we were really pushing the envelope. Be, you know, we, were, we were making the arguments as clear as we could, and, and we thought we were right, but we were still, we felt like we were, we were pushing a little. And, and then um, this, the subsequent events, since the publication of the book, led us to feel like we maybe should have been even stronger on, on those arguments be, because they ended up um, coming to fruition, fruition in, in such terrifying ways.
2: And, 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 and go ahead.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and I was also just thinking about, you know, we've recently, for example, come through the, uh, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be sarcastic here, the Biden storm of going after Peter Ducey, right, from Fox News, um, and there was, I think that moment is actually really, really instructive about the power of the office and how Biden approaches it, because there was in a lot of ways. You know, you can look at you can see the characteristic breakdown of progressive saying, oh, yeah, he needs to say that, you know, that's fine. You know, that's great. And conservative saying, oh, no, 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 no. You know, this is not good. Um, And essentially reversal of positions from, you know, uh, just a few just a few short years ago. Uh, But if you watch Joe Biden's behavior, he calls Ducey to apologize. And I think that becomes really important here. Why? Because with the power of the president's words and the power of the president's position, to call out an individual is potentially dangerous. And presidents have traditionally, except when they're praising or honoring an individual, they're very reluctant to engage in those particular types of pointed attacks And so I think Joe Biden understands the power there. And that's partly the reason why the, he wanted to diffuse that situation with an apology and also to take some of the weight away from his words as president of the United States. Donald Trump did not have that restraint. So he used social media to go after individuals, um, Union bosses, members of Congress, particularly as as Kevin noted, uh, women of color, uh, and what does that do? Well, that just increases the pressure and the targeting potential of those individuals to harassment, which we know is a problem, particularly for women and women of and 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 persons of color online. Um, so you get harassment, you get potential death threats, you get you know calls for violence, and So I think that these particular moments are actually really important in understanding where, you know, Joe Biden, who also inhabits a ubiquitous presidency and is still trying to adapt to it, understands though, even in a quote unquote hot mic moment, we can debate whether or not that was hot mic, but the more important thing is he realized people heard it and he wanted to take away the weight of his words after it because he did not necessarily want any. Probably any ill harm to come to Ducey for it,
2: and and I wanted to ask you in connection to that because part of it is that the words themselves have have the weight because they they it is the United States presidency um, and the president is in the office um, that's connected to the symbolism also of the office and you talk about symbolism a little bit inside the book. Um, and it's something that I, I often pay attention to um, because of the rendering of the presidency in popular culture um, and, and, you know, what that communicates to so many of us in, in our consumption of the idea of the presidency. Um, so I wanted to ask you how your sort of thesis about the ubiquitous presidency connects to the symbolic value of that office.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think the way that the presidency exists in the mind of the average person is via symbolism, right? I mean that's 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 really the level at which the public, various publics engage with the presidency. And so I think as as the presidency and and the president occupying that office show up in a wider range of especially non-political venues, I think that necessarily shapes the Symbolic representation that might come into somebody's mind when when they they think of the presidency, and so you know we we find things in the book like the presidents, starting with Bill Clinton, increasingly showed up in in magazines like the the Hollywood uh, Reporter, right? You know, so which you wouldn't think that would be a place for the president, but it becomes a place for the president. Along with all these social media platforms and so forth that we've talked about. And so I think that that has to change the the kind of symbolic representation in the mind of a person such that it it maybe demystifies the the presidency, makes it feel a, a little bit less formal. And of course, as as we've touched on already, that that can have some some negative effects. It could have some potentially positive effects too. It can maybe flatten the the power disparities that traditionally exist, and it could, it can empower marginalized groups to to feel um, more able to you know to engage in 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 the office with the office in ways that have trad- traditionally been um, limited for for certain groups. But but yeah, I, th- I think symbolism becomes a really useful way to kind of anchor an understanding of the presidency in the public imagination.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, What immediately comes to mind and we talk about this in the book is uh, I believe it's Bill Clinton, December, 2000, just leaving office uh, is on the cover of Esquire magazine. And it's um, I remember when Kevin and I were writing this particular section, and we didn't know how to describe Bill Clinton's pose. It's, um, uh, and I'm sure now everyone who's listening is probably Googling what it looks like. It's a, uh, it's provocative. It's a provocative pose. And we'll just go with that. It's a very provocative pose. Uh, And particularly for the president of the United States, uh, who, and at that time, he is still president of the United States. So there is that particular element to it. And then the interesting thing is, and this gets back to kind of the symbolism of the presidency, uh, I believe it's eight years later, Halle Berry is on the cover of Esquire and replicates the pose right down to the aqua blue tie. Um, And it uh, it is provocative in its own way. And uh, uh, my guess is again, people who were just googling are also now googling the Halle Berry cover and doing a comparison. Um, but it illustrates in some ways, and I think this is this is really important. What does that office mean from a from a symbolic perspective? And so, what does it mean from a power perspective? But also, we then think about it when you see Halle Berry on the cover. What does that mean from a representation perspective of who Halle Berry is as a person and and essentially giving her the presidential seat, giving her that sort of the same kind of ways, the positioning that Bill Clinton has given eight years earlier. And so this is in a lot of ways what pop culture and what these sort of symbolic elements can do is they push the boundaries on the imaginary on what we imagine the president to be, much as there's some really fantastic work uh, by a colleague of ours at Temple, Jeff Boehm, um, looking at, for example, Donald Trump in the political imaginary in the 1980s and 1990s, and the ways in which he is framed by kind of a shock jock culture, Howard Stern, those particular types of media, um, talk radio as this sort of blue collar shock jock president and this is almost 20 years before he runs and so the the question the question i think is interesting here is what does that do to open up space for these types of figures and and so you can see as it opens up a space for an for a person like Donald Trump, but also in some ways, we, we need to think about it in the sense of, and Lily, I, I appreciated you brought this up earlier. Kevin and I were obviously nodding silently when you talked about um, essentially the framing of the office as masculine. The ways in which uh, symbolism, popular culture can open up the representation and the imaginary before it actually becomes the real for women, for persons of color, for individuals who have not who have not occupied that office and were in many ways kept out of it and are being kept out of it. I think that becomes really important here too.
3: Yeah. Our, our, our friends who are rhetoricians would refer to this as a rhetorical ecology, right? You know, this is, this is the space, we might call it a discursive environment, but it's, it's the space in which things start to feel possible because they've been talked about, they've been represented, they've been visualized in media spaces and In other discursive spaces in ways that then when they come to to be in the political sphere, it feels more plausible. It feels more possible.
2: And so, gentlemen, what are you working on now?
3: We're well, one one thing. I, I Josh and I laugh a little about this because we were we were going to have a meeting about this yesterday, but one of our collaborators was sick, and so it it got pushed. But what we're trying to work on is is um, extending a little bit our our idea here of venue expectations. So trying trying to grapple with the the changing ways that people understand where a president or another politician should talk, and and how that might influence perceptions of the content. And so, so we have um, what we think are some exciting experimental results in, in a new line of research on uh, what we're calling venue effects, which is just the idea that hearing the same content from a politician in a different venue, so maybe the state of the union as opposed to Twitter or as opposed to Facebook, might change the way that, that a, an individual perceives
0: that content. And so that's,
3: that's one extension that we've already got underway.
0: Uh, and I'll just add that one of the really cool things about this was my first book. And uh, one of the cool things has been seeing the life that it takes on, uh, you know, the classes that it's taught in, the people who end up reading it. And so one of the fun parts of this has been uh, Kevin and I have been meeting, you know, mainly virtually uh, with, uh, you know, students and classes and, faculty across the country to talk about the book. And what I think, what I hoped that it would do in like a small way is to, for students who might be interested in thinking about this and trying to understand what's going on, to be able to open up space for them to think about Where might they see parallels of these types of approaches, not only in the United States, but maybe with members of Congress trying to do these things, uh, these same types of tactics internationally? Do they see this with other political leaders as well? Um, I think for um, what immediately comes to mind is uh, New Zealand's uh, Jacinda Ardern as an important example of this. Um, And... So I think that there are a lot of extensions with this. And when we met when we when we met to talk about this in 2014, again, one of our frustrations was that the sort of research understandings had just become stagnant. And so what we hope this does is this actually reinvigorates study of these particular approaches. And I would say one of the one of the one of the important things. One of the I w- if I hope that there's any positive out of what we saw at, in January 2021 is if there's any positive, it's that people are taking this seriously now um, and not just basically saying that presidential communication from an office that occupies a metaphorical one microphone that that communication simply falls on deaf ears because it doesn't and those are the implications are very very important and so that's been one of the that's been one of the great things about not only continuing this work with kevin in terms of the research side but being able to talk with people uh, and help help kind of reimagine how we think about and reorient our understandings of what's going on here
2: Well, I want to thank Josh Scako and Kevin Ko for joining me today to talk about The Ubiquitous Presidency, Presidential Communication and Digital Democracy in Tumultuous Times, published by Oxford University Press. I assume one can purchase this book at the Oxford University Press website. Are there any brick and mortar stores with online presence to which you would like to give a shout out?
3: Yes. Thank you for that uh, That possibility. My favorite independent bookstore in the world happens to be in the city I, I live in, Salt Lake City. It's called the King's English Bookshop, and it's just as good as a bookstore can be. So you can always order it from there as
2: well. Thank you.
0: Yep, absolutely. Thank so, you
2: both for joining me today. Thank you, Lily. Thanks so much.